Hey everybody, how's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Tighten Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I just mentioned, my name is Hub, and I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Me? Oh, I'm doing okay. I'm sorry this episode is going up a couple days late. I was feeling a little bit under the weather, but doing much better now. Unfortunately, despite the fact that I am in fact feeling much better, I am uh, still self-quarantining for another few days yet, because, uh, you know, times being what they are. And it's not so bad. But it does feel a little bit like being in a human zoo enclosure, but without the good parts. Now, what would the good parts of being put in a human zoo be? Well, first of all, it would be gratifying to know that I was properly classified as a human and therefore put in a human zoo, as I am, in fact, as has been well established and is obvious to everyone, a human man from Earth. So, that's nice. But it would also be nice to have all of my annoying tendencies be played off as uh, animal fun facts. Like, I'm just going about my day, people are strolling by the enclosure, watching me do my shit, and the uh, zookeeper will tell groups going by, Here's a fun piece of trivia. Humans are incapable of putting their coffee mug directly into the dishwasher. They first have to set it in the sink for several hours. And just look up and nod and be like, yep, that's us humans for ya. And the zookeeper would turn to the next group that comes by and be like, Oh, and here's a human fun fact. Humans will not shut up about how good Ben Gazzara was in Roadhouse. And it'd be like, do you guys know how good Ben Gazzara was in Roadhouse? Because he was so good. Like that scene where he's just drunkenly swerving back and forth across the road singing Shaboom to himself. Ah, beautiful. And the zoo patrons would be like, oh yeah, our zookeeper story checks out. What an interesting animal fun fact. Maybe I should go watch this human earth movie Roadhouse. And yes, patrons of the Human Zoo, you should absolutely check out the Human Earth movie Roadhouse. Ben Gazzara is so good in it. Anyway, we got a lot of comic to cover, and uh, I've already dilly-dallied a few days longer than usual. So, without any further ado, let's, uh, do this. Today's synopsis rhyme is submitted by Gerald M. Danny Chase joining the Titans was a terrible plot twist but perhaps I'll take some solace in this issue synopsis. Synopsis. Thanks, Gerald. You've been reading ahead, haven't you? New Titans, number 55, June 1989. Transition. Written by Marv Wolfman and George Perez. Drotted by George Perez. Inkted by Romeo Tangal. Lettered by John Costanza. Colored by Adrienne Roy, and edited by Barbara Kiesel. New Titan Roll Call Wonder Girl, Nightwing, Jericho, Beast Boy, Cyborg, Raven, Starfire, Danny Fucking Chase, and Athens with a Y in flashbacks. Previously in the DC Universe. 
Wonder Girl, a.k.a. Donna Troy, had a backstory and origin that were a fucking nightmare of nonsensical, self-contradictory retcons. A problem that was exacerbated by a continuity rewriting crossover event called Crisis on Infinite Earths, which retroactively erased any possible connection between Wonder Girl and Wonder Woman. Previously in New Titans. Donna Troy, a.k.a. Wonder Girl, found out that all her childhood memories were made-up bullshit that had been total recalled into her brain by the titans of ancient Greek myth, who had been forcibly relocated to a different galaxy by Zeus a few thousand years ago. These old Greek titans were bummed that some space colonialism garbage they had tried out hadn't worked out so great for them. So as a plan B, they had adopted Donna and 11 other orphans from all over the universe when they were toddlers, taken them into space, and given them superpowers. They raised the orphans until they were teenagers, then erased their memories, implanted some fake ones, and sent them back to their respective home planets for reasons. The only problem with this otherwise thoroughly thought-out plan was that one of the super-orphans, a green lady named Sparta, regained her memories early, which for some reason swirled her cerebral oatmeal in a way that sent her into super-murder mode. Oops. Sparta tried to kill the OG Titans, but when that proved more difficult than anticipated, she switched gears and started tracking down and killing her super-orphan siblings. When Donna and the new Titans found out what was happening, they headed into space to try to stop Donna's space sister from doing any more murders. They left Danny fucking Chase at home because they had started to realize that Danny fucking Chase was a real piece of shit. Hooray! Maybe they started reading the letters column. When the gang got to space, Donna met her two remaining unmurdered space siblings, an adorable white-furred poet named Xanthi, and a gruff warrior named Athens with a Y. Then a bunch of complicated and self-contradictory space nonsense happened, but the main takeaways were... Sparta killed Xanthi, boo. Dick hurt his leg. Cyborg hurt his everything. Donna and Athens with a Y did a weird ceremony that gave the OG Titans more power, but cosmically lobotomized Sparta. And the combined forces of the new and OG Titans emerged relatively victorious. Hooray! The OG Titans were stoked about their power-up, and that they wouldn't have to face any consequences for the fucked-up colonialist space shit they had done in the past. As the gang prepared to head back to Earth, the OG Titans announced that both Athens with a Y and the newly mind-wiped Sparta would be moving in with them. Then they told Donna that they had a special present they wanted to give her. Gadzooks! What was Danny fucking Chase doing while the rest of the gang was in space? Will Athens with a Y get along with his new space roommates? And what special present did the Titans bestow upon Donna? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so throwing tantrums and hanging out with Terry Long. It turns out to be a moot point, because not only does he not move in with the OG Titans, but no mention is made of the fact that he was ever going to. And a new codename and a pile of stuff from ancient Greece that they had lying around. I think that might be the Greek god equivalent of keeping a bottle of wine and a scented candle in the car in case you forget to get somebody a present. Donna is back on Earth, and she and her shitty husband, Terry Long, are making out in the back of a taxi. Traffic is bad, so between makeouts, Donna has time to fill Terry in on some of the details of her recent space adventure slash origin retcon. Terry asks if she's going to open the present the OG Titans gave her, and she's like, nah, maybe later. When they get to their apartment, the doorman is like, 
Uh, Terry, just so you know, your ex-wife is still in there. I gotta believe that if Terry was a better tipper, the doorman probably would have figured out a way to say that that Donna couldn't hear. Donna's like, So, Marsha's been staying here with you while I was in space. Anything you want to tell me? Terry gets a super hangdog look on his face and is like, Uh, no? I mean, she's been having a tough time lately, so we've been hanging out a lot, which is why she and our daughter Jennifer were staying here in the guest room while you were away. Um, it's not a problem that I gave my ex-wife a key to our apartment and let her move in for a while without telling you, is it? Donna's like, no, it's fine. Just fine. When they get upstairs, Marsha greets them at the door and is a condescending, passive-aggressive asshole to Donna. After exchanging a few unpleasantries, she's like, Terry, go wait in the other room. The grown-ups need to talk. Terry is like, yes, ma'am. Once he's gone, Marsha is like, it's been a while since I appeared in this book and I just wanted to reestablish the fact that I'm a dick. Now, here's some unsolicited marriage advice and Terry wrangling tips. Terry is lazy and unmotivated, so you need to constantly berate him if you want him to do anything. Also, the fact that you're awesome is going to be a bit of a problem for him because it will make him realize how much he sucks. So try to yell at him a little bit more and also just be generally a little bit shittier, would you? Also, in case I hadn't mentioned it, I'm a dick. Uh, Terry, you can come back in here now and walk me out to the car. Uh, bye, Donna. It was nice belittling you. Man, Marcia is awful. I kind of like her. Meanwhile, over at Star Labs, a team of doctors and mechanics are working on Cyborg and trying to repair all of the damage that was done to his robot parts while he was in space. Apparently this is a very complicated and elaborate process, and one that needs to be done on a pretty regular basis. As the cybernetic pit crew does their repair work, the doctors access his memory banks to see what Victor remembers about what happened directly after the end of the last issue. Cyborg remembers that Donna had wanted to take Xanthi's body back to Earth and bury it there, but Athens with a Y was like, no, that's silly. He should be buried on his home planet. He was doing some important shit there and using his superpowers to protect his people and help them terraform their planet. I feel bad that I wasn't able to save him, so I'm going to go there and continue his work in his stead. Can you give me a ride? So the Titans gave Athens with a Y a ride to Xanthi's planet. After they dropped him off, Donna was like, Man, I'm going to miss that guy. Also, the OG Titans told me that I'm officially a god now? That's weird, huh? The rest of the gang assured Donna that that was indeed weird, but as long as she still liked ice cream, they would still be her pals. Donna was moved by this dairy consumption contingent solidarity, so they all had a group hug. While Vic is having his scientist-induced stroll down memory bank lane, Dick and Coriander are visiting a cemetery. Specifically, they are visiting the grave of Jason Todd, the boy who had taken up the mantle of Robin after Dick became Nightwing. While they were in space, Jason had been killed by the Joker. Bummer. I mean... I know he had a reputation as sort of being the Danny Chase of the Bat books, but from his few appearances in the Teen Titans, I liked Jason Todd. 
Dick is pretty upset about Jason's death and is further troubled by the fact that his and Jason's shared surrogate father, Bruce Wayne, aka Batman, didn't inform him of the tragedy and hasn't contacted him since. After paying his respects to his fallen junior comrade, Dick heads over to the Batcave to have a little chat with Bruce. After he leaves, Starfire has a flashback about how they learned of Jason's untimely passing. The gang had just gotten home from space and arrived at the Titan's T-shaped skyscraper. They were greeted enthusiastically by Terry Long and Danny fucking Chase. While Terry and Donna embraced, Danny was like, Hey guys, how was space? Bet you missed me. The gang was like, Uh, yeah, sure. Hi, Danny. Do you think you could tone it down a little? We're pretty wiped out from all the space stuff we just did. Danny was like, yeah, whatever. Hey, guess what? I'm pretty sure Jason Todd's dead. The gang was shocked, especially Dick. He was like, what? Danny was like, yeah, I tried looking him up on the Titans computer a couple of days ago, and it gave his status as unknown, which usually is code for dead. So I'm pretty sure that's what's up. Aren't you impressed with how good I am at computers? Dick rushes over to the computer and uses Batman's passwords to hack into some confidential files. Turns out that Danny was right. Danny was like, See? I told you! Hey, what are you guys looking at me like that for? What's the big deal? People die all the time. He probably had a comorbidity or something anyway, so... Dick picks Danny up by his lapels and is like, What the fuck is wrong with you? Shut up, you stupid fucking prick. God, you suck so goddamn much. Hooray! Danny is like, let go or I'll use my superpowers on you. Dick put Danny down and was like, you don't get it. I gave that kid my old Robin costume and now he's dead. God, you suck. Dick walked off to go get changed. Raven was like, Danny, please try to consider other people's feelings. Danny was like, but I don't want to. Jeez, I thought the Titans were cool guys like me and my super spy parents who have been taking me on deadly missions my whole life. But it turns out you guys are a bunch of whiny little babies who are going to cry about it every time a child dies. What a bunch of wusses. Starfire ends her flashback. And a short while later, Dick arrives at the Batcave and asks Bruce about what happens. Batman is a total prick about it. Not as bad as Danny, but still, it's pretty rough. Bruce is like, Why weren't you at the funeral? Dick is like, One, you never told me about it. B, I was in space. Bruce is like, Hmm, convenient. Anyway, you were a shitty sidekick. It's amazing you didn't die. Kids' sidekicks are all dumb and bad. Dick is like, Okay, that's not fair. And if you feel that way, then why do you keep dressing up children in brightly colored outfits and making them fight criminals with you? Batman freaks out at this. He punches Dick in the face and is like, Oh, so it's my fault. Fuck you. You always hated Jason. This is probably your fault somehow. Now get the fuck out of my cave and give Alfred your key on the way out. Dang, Bruce. Guess somebody's not exactly angling for that world's greatest bat dad mug this Father's Day. And this is the June issue, so that's right around the corner. While well, Dick and Bruce are having their little heart-to-heart slash fist-to-face, Starfire is meeting up with Donna at a hair salon in Queens. Donna wants a new look and is considering getting a short haircut. 
Coriander seems confused by the concept of an elective haircut, because I'm guessing that on Tamaran that would be considered a pretty major surgery. She asks if things are okay with Terry, and Don is like, oh yeah, we're fine. We had to have a little chat about setting some boundaries with his ex-wife, but things are good. I think it's just time for me to make a change in my appearance. Starfire is like, well, if you think amputation is the way to go, I'll try to be supportive. Meanwhile, Victor has finished up with his repairs slash surgery and is about to fly out to San Francisco to visit his girlfriend, Dr. Sarah Charles. Before he boards his plane, the mostly molybdenum marvel calls Beast Boy. He's like, Hey, the doctors told me you wouldn't leave the building until they were done working on me and you were sure I was going to be okay. I just wanted to let you know that I really appreciate that. Can we have a sincere moment where I tell you how much I value our friendship? Or are you going to get uncomfortable and try to hide your feelings behind crappy jokes that don't quite land? Beast Boy is like, crappy jokes that don't quite land. Vic is like, yeah, that's what I figured. Talk to you when I get back. After they hang up, Vic's long-suffering butler slash business manager Questor comes into the room and asks Gar if he's been studying. Gar lies and says that he's been reading about Tarzan for school, but Questor knows his Edgar Rice Burroughs and isn't fooled. He tells Gar that his stepdad Steve Dayton, the sixth richest, therefore sixth most trustworthy man in America, would like to have a word with him. Gar heads down to Steve's study, pausing only long enough to harass a maid. Damn it, Beast Boy! Steve quiet yells at Gar and tells him that since he keeps forcing his private tutors to resign, he's going to have to start going to public school. Beast Boy objects to this. Steve ignores him and is like, And another thing, until your grades improve, you have to quit the Titans. Hooray! Meanwhile, Jericho is hanging out at the house he shares with his mother. He unpacks some art supplies he's purchased and checks the messages on his answering machine. There are messages from no fewer than four women he is currently dating. He's also having all of these ladies pose for him, and from the paintings he has done and the messages they have left, it's clear that all of his paramours differ wildly from one another in terms of aesthetics, interests, and temperament. Hmm. There's a knock at the door as yet another woman arrives to pose for him. Dang, Joey! A couple days later, Dick, Donna, Raven, Starfire, Joey, and Danny fucking Chase get together at the Titan Tower. Donna has cut her hair into a short bob and has a new outfit which she has made out of the stuff the OG Titans gave her. Despite implying earlier that she hadn't unwrapped their gift yet, Donna reminisces about the ceremony they held for her where they explained giving her the following items. A pendant with a C for Cronus on it, a magic net, some fancy metal, an earring made out of a magic rock, a big silver bracelet, and a piece of cloth that has an ever-changing star pattern on it. She turned the pendant into a belt buckle, forged the metal into shoulder pads, boots, and gauntlets, into which she incorporated the magic net, reforged the silver bracelet into a mini skirt, and used the earring as a brooch which fastens together the galaxy cloth which she sewed into kind of an asymmetrical one-piece swimsuit. It's... A lot. The gang all tells her she looks great, which is for the best because she's totally committed to this new look. So committed, in fact, that she already had Joey paint a giant picture of her in her new outfit to hang in the tower's lobby. Oh, also, 
she doesn't want to be called Wonder Girl anymore. Her new name is Troya. Fair enough. I mean, it's kind of like if I decided my new superhero name was Habardo, but whatever. Danny fucking Chase, uncontent to let someone else have a moment, tries to refocus the conversation onto himself by asking when he's going to get a giant painting of him in the lobby. Dick is like, yeah, about that, you're off the team. Hooray! 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 Danny is like, what? Seriously? Dick is like, yeah, seriously. See, we're going through some changes as a team. Vic's going to be in San Francisco for a couple of weeks, and Gar is temporarily off the team. Hooray. So, now seems like as good a time as any to give you the boot. It's partly because I don't want you to get killed the way Jason did, but mostly because you kinda suck. Coriander and Donna offer some half-hearted objections to Dick's decision, but Danny pulls a, you can't fire me, I quit, and then uses his telekinesis to fly away from the tower. After a minute, Dick is like, well, that was kinda awkward. The end. You know, I'm still trying to piece together the timeline of this issue because there were a bunch of flashbacks, but I'm pretty sure if I'm reading it correctly, Donna's reaction to finding out about the death of Jason Todd, a young boy who she had worked with in the past and knew pretty well, was to have an extended makeout session with Terry in a taxi cab. Like, a few minutes later. Huh. And joining me once again via the magic of telephonic communication is my good-for-many-things brother, Corey. Corey, how's it going? Hey, it's going pretty great. How are you going? I'm going okay. Pretty good, all things considered, I must say. Glad to hear it. Well, you want to talk about this comic book? I kind of am excited to get into it. Yeah, likewise. Let's do it. All right. Corey, what did you think of this comic book? Oh my gosh. So many things confirmed. I know. And the end to the story arc of Wonder Girl's past? Fingers crossed. There was so much about this issue that, I don't know. In the past, I think we've both complained about specifically the character Danny Chase feeling like a bad attempt at fan service. Mm-hmm. And this feels like a very good attempt at fan service, specifically to fans like us. Like, there's so much that we have talked about that we have theorized about this book that then gets confirmed in this. And it's like it's giving us everything we've asked for. Yeah. In a way that makes me a little bit nervous, honestly. Are they listening? I mean, it's not just <laughs> Danny, right? Like Terry Long theories confirmed. Uh-huh. The fact that Jericho regularly attends Renfair? Confirmed. That he's turned into a kind of a creepy creeper? Confirmed. Come see my etchings. Come pose <laughs> for me. There's so many things. And like the specific treatment of Danny, not just the fact that Danny Chase is off of the Titans. Hooray! Yay. But also 
the way that he is kicked off and the confirmation that the way that he was raised and kind of the shitty parenting that he got warped him in a way that really deadened a lot of his emotions and traumatized him and turned him into kind of a little sociopath. We get that confirmed. It's Mm -hmm. really interesting. It makes me wonder if George Perez had been reading the comics that he hadn't been working on. And then once he comes back to the title, it's like, hey, so here's some things that I noticed. Because it feels like a different writer picking up on things that the previous writer had inadvertently established and being like, hey, is this what you were doing? And he's like, yeah, that's what I was doing. Yeah. So we had theorized before that this was an attempt to, you know, pander to a potentially younger audience. And I don't know, whatever testing they did didn't go so well. And so they started to try and walk it back. Mm -hmm. And boy, this feels like, like you said, some other editorial input was received and received loudly and uh, acted upon. Yeah, this definitely says more about me than the comic book. But there's part of me that's like, wait, you're giving me everything I wanted. I don't know about this. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like there is a a real skepticism that I have about it. But yeah, we're getting rid of Danny fucking Chase. Beast Boy is temporarily at least off the team. Man, it really feels like a directional change. And the issue is called Transition. And that is such a good name for this comic book. Everything about that works, including the fact that the title page for the comic book is not until the very last page of the comic. It really does make the whole issue feel like a transition. And I am very curious about the direction that it's going in. And I I don't know, guardedly optimistic. Things seem like they are going in an interesting direction. And there are seeds that are planted in this book, a lot of different seeds with most of the different characters that seem like they could be leading to a lot of different things, but are also set up in a way that if they don't get picked up on, if those seeds don't grow, it won't be frustrating in the same way that other ones have been. You know what I mean? It's Mm -hmm. hinting that like, here's some things that we could do, but nothing is saying, here's what we are going to do. And so I won't be pissed if they don't do it. Yeah, I'm I'm curious to see where they go with Cyborg, where I guess Star Labs, Silas's technology has been sold or something. And so Cyborg is a, a research vessel in some sense now, and that, that could have repercussions that could or could not be picked up in the future. We'll see. Yeah, it definitely could. And the idea of him being kind of commodified makes sense in the way that the character has been established so far. And I'm curious how far they're going to go with that. But like I said, it's set up in a nebulous enough way that if they decide not to pick up on that storyline, it still works as a character building thing for Victor, you know? Yeah, yeah, it does. And I guess I guess we'll see Donna taking a more proactive stance in her relationship with Terry. Maybe, unless it turns out that Marsha's full of shit. There's so much happening in an issue that in some ways very little happens. You know what I mean? Yeah. It felt like tying up a lot of loose ends that had sort of accumulated over the last, I don't know, 20 issues. Mm -hmm. It's really my favorite type of issue in a few different ways. First of all, I love the issues that focus on smaller day-to-day details of the characters' lives. And we get a lot of that for a lot of the different characters. 
It also is tying up some loose ends in a very interesting way, uh, and in a fairly satisfying way for the most part. There is a little bit of ignoring what had been established in the previous issue in terms of Athens' character, who we were told in the last issue, he's going to go off and live with the Titans and be a god. And in this issue, they're like, no, he's not. He's going to go back to Xanthi's planet and do that instead. There was also, it looked like the Titans were going to give Donna her gift at the end of the last issue. And there was some confusion. I think I kind of worked it out, but it looked like she hadn't opened her gift yet at the beginning of this. And Terry even mentions that it's, you know, all wrapped up in this big linen thing. And then we find out that, no, no, the, the old Titans gave her her present on New Cronus. I guess maybe then they just wrapped it up for shipping or something. <laughs> yeah, I was trying to puzzle that one out, too. But in her conversation with Terry, she never says she doesn't know what the gift is, right? She doesn't, technically. She does say that she hasn't unwrapped the present yet, which I think heavily implies that she doesn't know what it is, but there's plausible deniability there. Yeah, I think that she knew what it was, and he's like, what is it, what is it? And she's just like, ugh. If I tell him what's in here, he's going to make me write a paper for him or something. At least let me get a shower in before I have to do more exposition. I was a little bit annoyed with her when she was just like, I guess I'm just not ready for this chapter to be over. And I was like, well, I sure as fuck am. Yeah. Oh, my God. Terry Long in this issue. What a fucking bozo. Yeah, he is a real fucking turd. So I think with this issue, the way to cover it that makes the most sense to me is to just go kind of character by character, like through each of the Titans cast, and talk about each of their various stories and what happens with them. Does that work for you? I think that would be fine. Okay. So, there are three characters who don't get a ton of development in this. Raven, we really don't get much of her, other than I guess her mom is missing, which maybe we knew before, but I didn't remember if we did know. Mm-hmm. Because she mentions that when she's talking to Danny. But basically all she does in this issue is like, Hey, Danny, seems like you're going through some shit. And he's like, no, I'm not. Fuck you. Go away. Yeah, but she was also like, stop being such a dick. Yeah, which uh, that didn't go over particularly well. Nope. I mean, I applaud the sentiment, but y you may as well tell a fish not to swim or a bird not to terrify me. So there you have Raven, more or less. Starfire does maybe a little bit more, but mostly in this issue, she seems to exist to support Dick as he's going through some shit and support Donna as she gets a haircut. Yep. Cyborg, as we talked about, we do get a little bit of focus on him, and it is honestly a little bit chilling the way he is portrayed in this issue. You see them doing work on him at Star Labs by a kind of impersonal team of physicians, and it seems that his body is owned as much by the company as it is by him, maybe more so by the company, Star Labs, which is a little bit unsettling, but we don't really get too much story development with that, just a possible piece of background. Yeah, and just a side note on that, he's awake during that procedure, and I get it that it's all cybernetic and stuff, but fuck, man, can you imagine? Like, all your limbs are getting fiddled with and wires connected to all your organs and everything and they're talking to him <laughs> i'd be like can you guys just give me the gas yeah no shit the idea of being awake during surgery is horrifying for me i don't care how minor the surgery is oh me too 
When I was a little kid, I had an amangioma on my back that had to be removed. And I was awake during that surgery. And that is like the most minor surgery that you could possibly have. But even that was very, very unsettling. Mm. Like they numbed the area, but I could still feel the knife going into me. It just didn't hurt. And it just really creeped me out. If they can't give me anesthesia, I just want them to fucking hit me on the head with a big rubber cartoon mallet. Like anything, man. Yeah, I'm with you on that. Oh, poor cyborg. Yeah, and whether there's pain or not, you get the impression that there probably is some attendant pain with this. I think the most disturbing thing for me would be hearing the people talk as they're working on my brain about where they're going to go to lunch, you know? Yeah, yeah, so impersonal. It is, but I actually really appreciated that detail. Same, and in terms of good news, it sounds like he's kind of turned the corner on his whole being a shit about Sarah wanting to do her own thing. Yeah, he is going to San Francisco and he is hanging out with her. And as far as we know, he has put that little repeating micro loop of a character arc behind him for now, hopefully for good, because I was sure sick of that shit. I don't know, man. Let's talk about a character who doesn't seem to have made any kind of lasting progression in his character development beast boy Uh, every time it seems like he's doing better it is one step forward two steps back for him and i am pretty sick of it i liked how he was coming along in the last couple of issues he actually was pretty chill and then in this one he is back to being super immature he is back to harassing both i believe implied sexually harassing and just generally harassing his employees or people that are employed on his behalf both his tutors and the housekeeper he is once again unable to enjoy a genuine emotional moment with cyborg continually covering that up with jokes And so I'm not disappointed that we're going to get a little break from him, but I am disappointed that the burgeoning signs of him showing some maturity got taken back to step one. Yeah, I guess the only silver lining there, and maybe this is due to the Freshmaker having gone through all that shit and come back and, you know, him almost losing his his stepdad, where Dayton's like, hey, stop fucking around, no more Titans. And Beast Boy's like, okay. Yeah. You know, I expected to be like, fuck you, you're not my real dad. Maybe he's going easy on the Fresh Maker because he's sore that he dropped one in the richest man in America rankings. Because now he's the sixth richest man in America. Oh, Mr. Jupiter will be pleased. Well, Ju- Jupiter was top of the heap regardless, and Jupiter was richest in the world. Dayton was only fifth richest in America, and... Like, I think there is maybe some insinuation that that number five spot was taken by Donald Trump because there's a little reference to him in a way that was like almost nostalgic remembering when he was like, I wouldn't say benign, but a less impactful avatar of boorish avarice and buffoonery. Yeah, but it didn't make me think of that. It made me think of when he took that ad out in the New York, was it New York Times mm. or something to get the death penalty for the guys that were wrongly ac- accused in the, um, you know, Central Park five. Yeah. 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 It was, oh man, that was yeah, eerie. That's a good point. Just be like, holy shit, this guy has been around being a shit for a long time. <laughs> yeah. He has been a part of the pop culture landscape for quite a while. 
Speaking of pop culture, we also, just in terms of Beast Boy being consistently written, if not well-written, we once again see that his cultural references are, with few exceptions, the ones that Marv Wolfman would have had as a teenager. Mm -hmm. Because Questor reprimands him for turning into a chimpanzee and swinging around. And he's like, oh, no, uh, we're learning about Tarzan in high school. And so I'm practicing being Cheetah, who is the name of Tarzan's chimpanzee in the Johnny Weissmuller Tarzan movies of like the 40s and 50s, I think. Mm -hmm. Why would that be Beast Boy's reference for Tarzan? Editor Hub here in the future. The Johnny Weissmuller Tarzan movies were actually in the 30s, it turns out. Uh, but Cheetah was a fixture in Tarzan movies throughout the 50s and 60s as well. And how were they learning about fucking Tarzan in high school? So many questions. So few good answers. <laughs> I mean, I, I guess maybe I shouldn't chide the potential anachronism there too much because... When I was in high school in the 90s, I it was when I read all of the Edgar Rice Burroughs Tarzan novels. But there's no way they would have taught those in school. Yeah, I, Beast Boy might have just been full of shit. But yeah, I was keeping in character with him referencing old timey for him stuff. Mm -hmm. You ever read any of the Tarzan novels? I can't remember. I feel like I, I might have. I definitely had some exposure to them. They were not good, but I did like them a lot. We talk about Danny Chase being like an overpowered character who is constantly being given new skill sets. That is absolutely the way Tarzan was written. Mm. I know I've referenced it before, but Tarzan and the Ant-Men, when he gets hit in the part of your head <laughs> that makes you shrink down to the size of an ant, even among the Ant-Men, Tarzan was mighty. Oh, boy. That's just quality writing. <laughs> I hope I never hit that part of my head because it seems like it'd be hard to reverse it well that's why we were always careful to wear a motorcycle helmet when we would take turns hitting each other in the head i mean safety first <laughs> but yeah i don't remember how he got reambigged. perhaps it's time to revisit the classics yeah see how well they hold up i would suspect pretty bad even uh, as a fairly unenlightened 13 year old in the early 90s i remember thinking Oof, this is super racist. Ooh, yeah, I'm sure it reads much worse now then. I would imagine so. Any other thoughts on Beast Boy in this issue? Uh, just stop touching ladies that don't want you to touch them. <laughs> yeah, it, it was like they just couldn't resist putting that in because it didn't further anything in this. And it was like, hey, here's a funny thing that he can do that's endearing. And gosh, it wasn't. Mm-mm. It was cute when he had turned himself into a chimpanzee and was wearing a baseball hat for no reason and mm -hmm. was holding hands with Questor as they're walking down the hall. Like, we could have left that as our goodbye image of Beast Boy, but no, they had to just have him turning into a bird and flying up a lady's skirt. Mm -hmm. Making her drop the laundry she was carrying, too. It's just like, dick move on top of dick move. Yeah. There was another moment where I was wondering if it was supposed to be Beast Boy being a creep when he is comforting Donna about the fact that he still wants to be friends with her when we're having our flashback moment. He says something about like, hey, as long as you like Hagen does, we can all still hang out together and chill and be pals. And she says, I'm touched all the way down to my knees. 
Was she saying that Beast Boy was, like, groping her? No, I just thought it was a weird turn of phrase to mean what he said was touching. Okay, it was just... It's not a phrase that I've ever heard before, and it made me wonder if that was what she was alluding to. I would much prefer to read it as her trying to say that was touching, but maybe she's still a little bit out of it from blowing up a sun for a second or whatever happened. Mm -hmm. Yeah, let's go with the latter. Okay. Let's move on to Jericho. What do you think about Jericho in this? Well, I think I was wrong where <laughs> you had posited before that he was turning into a real player. Mm -hmm. And I was like, no, he just likes art <laughs> a lot. Well, I mean, that's still a possibility. They're not mutually exclusive, it turns out. He's an accomplished painter, but is also, uh, and I guess if it's consensual, whatever, it's fine. But it, it did have a a little bit of a weird power dynamic thing, I think, where he's like, all these ladies want him to paint them, and he's uh -huh. sleeping with all of them, and not returning any of their calls. Well, it's got to be tough for him to return calls. He, he is mute. So maybe oh, he has a, a different point. way of, like, maybe he's writing them letters. We, we don't know. Yeah, or he's got a, what you call that machine that does the speech-to-text thing. Oh, yeah, he might have one of those. When you were starting to say that, I was like, a falcon? He might have a falcon that he sends to their house. Messaging pigeons? Yeah, it would play very much into the fact that we find out that one of these ladies, their preferred activity is going to Renfair together. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he could have at least sent her a message bird. Maybe he did. We don't know. It is interesting as he is looking through the paintings that he has done of these different women. Each of them seems to be fitting a different archetype. Like, he is cycling through very different personalities that he is dating. I wonder if there is something that they are trying to develop in that regard. I also wonder if maybe he is just super into, like, Harvey Sid Fisher. <laughs> He's just doing Zodiac stuff. Every Zodiac sign. This one will dress like a cowgirl. This one is a loving Leo lion. All right. So we get a woman, like, in a fancy, like, old-timey dress with a parasol. Yeah, so I'm guessing Parasol Lady's probably supposed to be Virgo. Virgo, Virgo. Demon Lady's probably going to be Scorpio. Yeah, probably. Mm -hmm. Scorpio. Uh, Naked Dancy Lady Aquarius? No, no, no. Naked Shower Lady's going to be Aquarius. Oh, Naked Shower. Right, right. I am an aquarium. So naked dancy lady, um, gosh, I really need to revisit my Harvey Sid Fisher. Uh, she's a real moon child. <laughs> yeah, she's a cancer. Yeah, she's probably a moon child. I am a moon child. So, OK, it's all it all makes sense. He is just a big <laughs> Harvey Sid Fisher fan. And, you know, he can't sing. So he paints instead. But they are all wearing just like different costumes and do seem to be like embodying different archetypes in the same way. And I did think that was interesting. I also noticed it seems like his mullet is getting longer mm -hmm. as the 90s are approaching, because this would have been, I think, the June of 89 issue. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I wonder if he's going to like Metallica go short haired for a, for a minute. Maybe, but not until we are well into the 90s. 
I don't know. I, I got to say, I got a, I got a weird vibe about him from this issue. And I don't know how we're supposed to feel about it. I think we're supposed to be like, yeah, you're cool, dude. But it didn't come across that way. I think we're supposed to be a little unsettled, especially because it has shown him hitting on Starfire and Raven and Sarah Sims in relatively recent issues. Mm. I think there is something going on, but we'll see. This stuff I have not read before. This is all new to me. Okay. Any other Jericho thoughts? Well, just, I mean, I guess we'll, we'll get to this when we talk about Wonder Girl or Troya, but mm-hmm. we find out that that's the last portrait that he did was of her. Yes. Let's save Wonder Girl for last because I think there's the most territory to cover with her. Danny fucking Chase. Oh. I mean, I, th- I think he kind of covered it already. Like, he had a super weird upbringing that warped him, and he never got a chance to be a kid and turned him into mm-hmm. a little sociopath. Yeah, that really does seem to be the case, and it is something that I think was inadvertently hinted at before. I do not think that was the way they were developing the character when we got the seeds of that. Like, when there was the fun spy adventure, and... He was like, well, that spy died, but good news. Mm -hmm. I saved the day. Hooray for me. I think that was just supposed to be one of those like theoretically high stakes adventures that was written as a low stakes adventure, you know, like an 80s action movie characters died in. And I think that was kind of the idea behind this character for the most part was he was supposed to be what kids would want to be. Mm hmm. You know, candy for breakfast if you want, because you're left alone all the time. You're a latchkey kid. You fall in with a bunch of cool teens, and you get to hang out with them all the time and do whatever you want, and they all think you're the best. But this issue really does start exploring the more sinister side of the implications of that. Somewhat. It is still like, well, we needed to get rid of this character, so he's gone at the end of this issue when he zooms off on his little fucking TK cloud. But... As much as I am 100% on Dick's side in the way that he yelled at him and kicked him out, the fact that they had a 14-year-old living with them who was their responsibility, and then they're just like, well, you're on your own, get out into the city, do whatever, we don't fucking care. That's pretty fucking harsh. Yeah, and okay, I get that you don't want to take the kid on the dangerous interstellar mission with gods and stuff, Mm -hmm. but... At the same time, there is that whole latchkey thing. They were entrusted with this kid. Uh-huh. They, they could have tried to track his parents. Hey, we got to go to space for some indeterminate amount of time and we might not come back. You know, maybe look after your kid. Yeah. Or, I mean, honestly, at that point, they could have even called Terry Long. Like, Terry ended up finding Danny at the tower and being like, hey, let's go get a pizza or whatever. But, like, they just left that kid by himself for an indefinite amount of time to look out for himself. And then at the end of this, now he doesn't even have a place to stay. The only person who he could have stayed with previously had been brought up to be his uncle, world's worst district attorney, Adrian Chase, and he's dead now. This kid's parents are his only family. The subject that they were terrible parents for bringing him on murder missions with them was never even broached before. And now I guess it's a non-issue. I'm Assuming we will get some wrap-up of the Danny Chase story 
it really does almost look like they were going to turn him into a villain of some sort. I, I think the potential for that is there. We certainly have the setup for it now. He's got the motivation. Yeah, I don't know if that is Wolfman's intention, but it seems as though it is Perez's intention, at least with the art. Like, the cold, dead look in his eye when he is reprimanded by Dick is just like, oh shit, like the first one. It is like, honestly, chilling when they do the close-up of his face. It is a flat, oh, oh, I see type of thing yeah and also the anger on his face when dick's got him like smashed up against the wall he says hey let go of me or i'm gonna use my powers on you and mm -hmm. and the expression on his face there is, is very scary yeah he could go just full fire starter there yep is that what happened in that movie did drew barrymore kill people in that i, I don't think i've, I've ever seen actually it, seen and it. i just can't remember okay i think she was supposed to be like a redeemable bad guy but i, I can't remember she was a little kid. Mm -hmm. I don't think it was like a village of the damned situation. Or like a the bad seed. From Jim Cotta? No, no. That was that called the Village of the Damned? I thought that was the village of something else. <laughs> I can't remember. I thought that was the village of the mutants, maybe, or something. <laughs> Editor Hub here in the future. It was in fact Village of the Maniacs in Jim Cotta. Well, we're just going to have to watch that cinema gold again. I love that there was a pommel horse over the well in the middle of the field for him to do little uh, pommel horse tricks on and punch and kick people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Man. Well, where else are you going to put it? Oh, God. Can you imagine if Danny Chase learns gymnastic skills and karate kills? Oh, man. Then he's really going to come back for Dick and give him a run for his money. Oh, boy. World's most powerful telepath. Gifted artist, photographic memory, karate kills, and gymnast skills. Oh, boy. It writes itself. Shit. Corey, I don't want to write a Danny Chase movie, but I think maybe now we have to. <laughs> I wish you hadn't brought it up. Bob. I'm sorry. It's okay. We had to. It's a big part of the comic. Hmm. All right, let's talk about Dick in this issue. <laughs> By which I mean Dick Grayson. Dick Grayson's having a pretty rough go of it, but uh, I can think of few more cathartic moments in a comic book than watching him actually lose his shit at Danny Chase. It felt earned, and it felt really, really satisfying. When he's like, you little fucking idiot, what the fuck is wrong with you? I was like, yay! Yeah, I know. It felt a little weird to me, actually, to have such a joyful response to what is a horrible, stressful situation for everybody. <laughs> I Except know. Danny, because he doesn't have feelings, but yeah. Right, but no, that, that moment was just so satisfying. But yeah, Dick is going through a lot right now. I guess I hadn't fully realized how young he was when he started being Robin, because... In the timeline of DC Comics, like whatever the comic book version of time is, he is 20 years old. And from that perspective, he says that he was Robin for nearly 12 years. So he started when he was, what, eight? Or subtract a couple years for him getting older on the Titans? What, five or six, seven? He's been Nightwing for, let's say, sliding timeline, at least a year. Mm -hmm. So seven years old. 
Batman brought him out and had him fighting criminals in the streets of Gotham. That is horrifying. <laughs> My stepsons are seven. I, I couldn't get him to stop peeing on the toilet seat until... Well, I, they may still do that. I don't know. Sorry, guys, if you're listening. <laughs> Did you ever try getting them to go out and punch criminals? No, no, I, I didn't. Well, I mean, mixed success here, I guess. <laughs> but, you know, you had to. <laughs> yeah, no, no. The uh, Finding and reducing video game time seemed to be the, the most effective way to mm. take care of it. I wonder if Batman even thought about that. No, I don't think so. He's <laughs> like, we'll start you off like... <laughs> Just go into this houseless community. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're not ready for super villains yet, but uh, here, go fight a mugger, a fucking seven-year-old. <sighs> I don't care what the other sidekicks are doing. In this house, you don't fight serial killers until you're nine. Boy, father of the year, huh? I mean, it's like we, we knew that already, right? That right. That was a <laughs> terrible father figure, but holy shit, in this issue... Dick, you know, good for him, goes in there and is like, hey, I got to, what the fuck? Like, why didn't you tell me about Jason dying? And then they kind of get into a, like, it's your fault. No, it's your fault. Then Batman punches him out. Yeah. Essentially. Well, he doesn't punch him out. He, well, he, he punches, punches him, him down. Punches him pretty bad. Yeah. Clearly, Batman is not supposed to be sympathetic in this issue. And I like the idea that the Teen Titan books are written from Dick Grayson's perspective. And so you see his version of Batman and just like, wow, guys, a real fucking prick and is behaving totally irrationally right now. And like Dick seems to be pretty chill about it, all things concerned. He goes there and he's like, I wish you told me. And Batman starts yelling at him and he's like, hey, I, under I get it. You've been through some shit. And Batman's like, no, nah, fuck you. Fuck you. You always hated Jason because I adopted him and I didn't adopt you. And Dick's like, hey, I asked what was up with that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But all right. You know what? Fucking have fun. I feel bad for Dick. I do notice he still won't let Raven fix his leg, I guess. Seems like a weird move at this point. He doesn't have any excuse for it. He could have let her fix it on the ride home. There wasn't a battle coming up. I guess maybe that pain is still keeping him sharp or whatever. I think he's just watching Roadhouse on repeat. <laughs> pain don't hurt, pain don't hurt, pain don't hurt. Be like Dalton. Well, I think maybe it's both he's trying to be like Dalton and the pain don't hurt none thing. But also, Sam Elliott walks with a pronounced limp that entire movie. So maybe he just wants to be cool like Sam Elliott and cool like Dalton. Whew. And I mean... I like Dick Grayson, but you are no Sam Elliott Patrick Swayze hybrid. <laughs> no. No, I should say not. No, Ben Gazzara would eat that guy for lunch. Well, let's talk about the focus of this issue, and in some ways the focus of the last five issues. Donna Troy, Wonder Girl No More. Troya. What did you think of her? I think I'm in Starfire's camp. It's a big change to get used to. It seems okay, I guess. I don't know. It seems weird. The new costume? New costume and new... Like, ostensibly, there's some kind of reckoning going on with, you know, what kind of hero I was as Wonder Girl and what kind of hero I'll, I'll be as Troya and what mm -hmm. this has to do with me and my good-for-nothing husband. Yeah. 
So let's start with just the costume. It's a lot. It is a complicated look. It is, I believe, in some ways, the archetypical George Perez costume, where it looks pretty cool when he draws it. It seems like it is going to be a nightmare for anyone else to draw. And it looks cool with all of the details that are on it. But there's not a ton that's particularly iconic about it. You know? Mm -hmm. A lot of pieces, and we find out the origins of all of those pieces because she gets get a little lecture. And it looks like she just kind of took all the pieces and then like welded them together in different ways, which took me a bit of time to figure out. So there was one I couldn't figure out. What did she do with the stone or the ring that was the counterweight used in the scale of justice? Did she break it in two and make those moon-shaped earrings out of it? No, that is the little brooch that she has. You can see it on the cover. It is fastening the strap of her costume on. A uh, little nod to the 80s there, too, by the way, with the kind of crooked, like, off-the-shoulder. The asymmetrical décolletage. Mm-hmm. Speaking of homages, the cover is a beautiful homage to the Teen Titans 23 issue of the original series, to the point where, in the signature, it even says a la Cardi, which I think is a really nice little tribute to Nick Cardi. And I think it's really clever, especially on the cover, the way they have her bursting through the image of the old Wonder Girl, but there is actually an in-story explanation for why she is bursting through that image and what that image was, that it is the old Titans poster that had been hanging in the headquarters, and now she has a new look, so she's bursting through it like the Harlem Globetrotters bursting through a paper hoop. Mm -hmm. I love that image. I love that cover. I think that's really cool. I'm a little bit on the fence about her new outfit, but I understand the idea that like, hey, she's been through a lot. She just found out more about who she is. She wants a clean slate type look. I do kind of wish she got to wear pants, though. Yeah, you can see her underwear through the weird little Roman skirt thing. Or I guess one piece bathing suit because it is the galaxy cloth that makes up the bulk of her tunic. Mm -hmm. It is not a particularly cohesive look either, I must say. I find myself wondering how long that's going to stick around. I would be surprised if it's very long, honestly. I think, especially if George Perez is no longer drawing it, there are so many little fiddly details that need to be gotten right that it just doesn't seem sustainable. Agreed. I have often wondered what exactly the creative process is on this book, whether it is from full script or like more Marvel method. And this really did make me wonder that when you have Oceanus and Tethys giving her the nets that tied the oceans together, it's like, here, incorporate these into your costume. That did seem like Marvel Wolfman being like, so she could wear fishnets now, huh? There's an in-story explanation for that. <laughs> and Perez just was like, oh, yeah, I guess she'll uh, put these nets in her gauntlets and shoes for some reason. Mm -hmm. Let's talk some Terry Long. <sighs> I don't even know, other than, you know, saying that it's perfectly drawn, the expression when it's, I don't know if it's hangdog or guilty or sleazy or some weird combination of all of them, but when they're showing up to his apartment and the doorman's like, oh, by the way, your, your ex-wife is still here. And Terry's like, oh yeah, so she's been staying here and, you know, is that cool? And he's yeah. looking over his shoulder saying, do you mind? To Donna, like she has a choice as they're going into the front door where his ex-wife is there. 
Yeah, and whenever it's a do you mind, not if I do this, but do you mind that I just went ahead and did this? That's always a rough ask. And yeah, that panel, his expression is just like, oh. Like it just occurred to him that maybe having your ex-wife come live with you while your current wife is off fighting space battles might not be cool. Yeah, especially because Terry and Terry's ex-wife has have had a fairly acrimonious relationship since their breakup, it seems like. And Donna and Marcia definitely have, and we see that continue huge. Marcia is such an asshole to Donna in this issue. Oh, she's awful. In a way that was honestly kind of funny, but mostly the way that she is an asshole. She's just like, look, here's the thing you need to understand about Terry. He is a lazy, shiftless piece of trash. <laughs> and you just need to yell at him to get him to do stuff. But you don't yell at him. So you need to yell at him more because he's worthless and he'll do whatever you say. <laughs> Yeah, pretty much. But then there was also this weird bit in there about like, and also, you know, you're a beautiful superhero, so you need to protect his ego by making him feel like he's better than you. But also yell at him. Yeah, it was a really weird mix. And I, I'm glad we're not supposed to feel sympathetic towards Marsha in this, because she really is being a, a, a real piece of work. But the extent to which she is passive aggressive is, if nothing else, impressive. Like that she's just like, oh, you went into space or whatever. <laughs> How nice for you. For our honeymoon, we went to Niagara Falls. And Terry tries to play it off. It's like, ah, you know, we were young. What, what the fuck did we know? And she's like, Oh, yes, we certainly were stupid being that young. Hey, Donna, isn't that how old you are? <laughs> yeah. Oh, man, she's <laughs> such an asshole. And I think we, we mentioned earlier how well the expressions were rendered when Dick and DFC were having their exchange. Mm -hmm. And the way that Donna's face is depicted as she's responding to this barrage of assholery is amazing. Mm -hmm. Like there's this panel right as Marsh is leaving. Donna has this arched eyebrow and like this look of just like, really? Like it's annoyance and just all the feels that you would feel. And it's, it's rendered flawlessly. Yeah. If you have ever wondered what the noise. Uh-huh. <laughs> looks like. <laughs> Just pick up this issue and look at the way that Donna's face is drawn as she is getting this lecture about how she should handle Terry in this. I loved that whole exchange and I loved especially the end of it when she sticks her tongue out at her. Mm -hmm. That is beautifully drawn. Like after Marsha leaves, Donna sticks her tongue out. It's really cute. But I also like the fact that she's like, yeah, whatever. It, it doesn't necessarily mean that their relationship is in trouble at all. I think that is the obvious read on this, but then you see later when Donna's getting her hair cut and whatever, she's like, yeah, this isn't about Terry, whatever. We're fine. Maybe they are fine, maybe they aren't. I, I suspect that they're not. It probably is leading to something. But this is another one of those where if it doesn't lead anywhere, I'm honestly fine with that because it's still a great character building moment, even if it doesn't lead to the expected plot point. Yeah, totally. But it was fun to read how little respect Terry's ex has for him. Well, it is also clear that she's kind of trying to sow dissent there. Pretty good. Yeah, a lot of drama. Mm-hmm. I think that's all of the characters that we deal with. The big takeaways from this plot are that uh, Jason Todd is dead. 
Danny fucking Chase is off the team. Wonder Girl is now Troya, which I'm not crazy about that name. Mm-hmm. It's fine. I get that she can't be called Wonder Girl anymore for a couple of reasons. First of all, she is a fully grown woman now. So the girl is a little bit weird at this point, and she no longer has any tie to Wonder Woman, so the name needs to change. I feel like they could have come up with something better than Troya. It honestly makes me wonder if they were like, hey, that new Star Trek The Next Generation show? The name Deanna Troy sounds kind of like Donna Troy. How about we just mush those together for Donna's new codename? And also, just on a personal note, it's weird to get the whole five-issue Who is Wonder Girl story and have it end with, never mind, there is no Wonder Girl anymore. Yeah, yeah. But it does kind of wrap it up. Well, speaking of wrapping things up, are you ready to move into the minutia? Sure. All right, Rick, would you mind singing us in? We got minutia. It's not the biggest part, it's just minutia. Like Corey eating farts, we got minutia. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. So, Corey, what do you feel like starting off with? Let's uh, ease into things with uh, timestamps. Okay. Corey, what timestamps were you able to find in this issue? Well, I guess other than all of the fashion, which we'll talk about later, being very Mm. 80s, the scene in Star Labs when Cyborg's getting worked on, in the midst of all this super-duper high-tech, the guy who's talking about where to go to lunch is doing it on an 80s-looking corded telephone. Yeah, I think there would have probably been, especially at Star Labs, some nascent wireless technology at that point. But that is a very 80s move, like corded telephone in a high-tech lab. I think the obvious one is uh, Beast Boy referring to Hagen Dazs. I think that's a very 80s move. I had that as well. This certainly borders on fashion, but when Donna is getting her haircut, she is reading an issue of Short Hair Magazine, (laughs) which has a lady with a big uh, spiked mullet on the cover. I was going to say, wait, they, they stopped producing short hair magazine? Well, I think they're just doing online publishing these days. <laughs> but that, that just seemed very late 80s, that that would be a, a point of contention. And the idea that a woman getting her hair cut short would be as much of a big deal move, I think, seems kind of late 80s. Mm-hmm. We also see when Beast Boy is supposed to be studying and he's instead playing video games in his room. He is using what looks very much like the NES Zapper that you would use to play Duck Hunt. I thought that too, but he's shooting actual people on the screen. Well, it's airplanes, I think. Or maybe spaceships, so it might have been like To the Earth or a game like that. Hmm. Speaking of those video games, Steve Dayton has some very high standards for Beast Boy because he says he wants his grades to be higher than those video games he plays. So he, he wants him to get like... A couple million on a test? Oh, no, I think that's just Dayton not understanding how video games work. Maybe. I did think that was pretty funny, though. He's just trying to figure out, how do I communicate with this kid? I know, I'll use a video game. Hmm. Metaphors or lingo. Yeah, I know you get at least B pluses at Duck Hunt. (laughs) Well... Let's get into this, sartorially speaking. What did you think of the fashion in this issue? We talked about Donna's costume already, but there's still a lot of other fashion to go around. Yeah, boy, there sure is a lot. 
I think I had mentioned earlier, all of it is was very 80s. And, and the one that stood out the most, I guess, to me about that is I called it Baggy Joey. Yeah. On page 20, he's got a really bright hue of blue in like a oversized, super loose sweatshirt and very baggy white pants that, that mm-hmm. terminate pretty high, like they're pegged. And then some skinny socks and uh, maybe like kangaroos, like Velcro topped white sneakers. Uh-huh. Yeah, I had a Ocean Pacific shirt that was definitely the same color as that sweatshirt Joey's wearing when I was like 13, I think. Mm-hmm. And as I said, his mullet is getting longer, and it looks like he is wearing a swatch. He is wearing a pale pastel blue wristwatch that I would bet money is a swatch. Oh, yeah, you know it. Because he is on the cutting edge of fashion. Mm-hmm. You ever wear a swatch? I did. I did. I, I had a really cool one. It had a red band and like green stuff on the face. Mine had a brown band and uh, I forget what color the squiggles on the watch face were. I do know that I wore it for about like 20 minutes before I ended up scraping it on the wall and getting like paint on the outside of it. Oh, no. Yeah. But uh, I loved that thing. Yeah, I was I was kind of obsessed with that brand. I don't know what they did or how they figured out to do their marketing such that, you know, 11 to 13 year old boys would become obsessed with fashion accessories, but they pulled it off. I think really the key to the hearts of the youth of America at that time was their product placement in Parker Lewis Can't Lose. Because I remember that guy saying synchronized swatches and me thinking that was pretty darn cool. (laughs) This is an odd fashion choice that was made in this issue. But did you notice that Vic is wearing an eye patch over his robot eye? What? No. How did I miss that? I was I was so distracted by his fedora, which I guess is, you know, the be-all end-all of disguises. I didn't even see the eye patch. Yeah, it's on page 18. It's in the panel where he is wearing the fedora. It's in just in the one panel where he's on the phone with Beast Boy. But he's got an eye patch over his robot eye, which we know can just be turned off. And he just had all the repair work done on it, so it should be working fine. It is clearly a disguise choice that he is wearing. And at that point, why not just wear a fake mustache? That isn't going to hide the fact that you were a cyborg about as well as that standard issue eye patch is going to. Yeah, and it doesn't really do anything to distract from that, you know, a third of his face is metal. That's what I'm saying. That's I somehow missed that. That's yeah, he's got gloves, a fedora, an eye patch. It's a good look. It is. And yeah, we talked at length about Donna's new outfit, complete with new haircut. She has a shorter haircut. I was hoping, frankly, that she would get something more akin to the cover girl of short hair magazine, (laughs) that kind of spiky mullet Annie Lennox look. But instead, she goes for a kind of just a more traditional bob, Mm -hmm. which is fine. And Marsha has a very 80s businesswoman, but like casual look. Mm -hmm where it definitely has the big shoulder pads, but it's for a more leisure activity. I think it might even be made out of denim because it seems to match her mom jeans that she's wearing. But uh, nice look for Marsha there. Yeah, like a sports pantsuit. Yeah, consistent with her character as a kind of aggressive jerk hole as well. (laughs) Yep, they love sports pantsuits. (laughs) 
Sorry, let's take this party to the Bozone. Some very satisfying insults in this comic book. Uh, which ones do you want to focus on? Oh, just the whole dick yelling at Danny, calling him a stupid little jerk and just thought he was young, but he's just plain dumb and blah, blah, blah. Let's look at that verbatim because it is worth exploring. And frankly, I just want to read it again. Dick is trying to process the fact that he has just found out that Jason Todd is dead. And Danny says, hey, we knew the job was dangerous when we took it. Dick picks Danny up by the lapels of his jacket and yells, you stupid little jerk. God, I can't believe how idiotic you are. I thought it was just because you were a kid, but you're really just plain dumb. Danny is taken aback. Starfire's like, Dick? And Dick continues, No, get back, Corey. I can't keep listening to this moron thinking life's just a statistic. Not when he nearly fell apart when it was his own blood that was spilled. And that really does bring back that moment. It was during the uh, Dial H for Hero mm -hmm. issues where it looked like Danny maybe peed his pants when he got hurt a little bit. Mm -hmm. And it's nice to see that the comic hasn't forgotten about that. And uh, whether that was the intent when it happened, it really does not paint Danny in a positive light. Not a big deal when anything happens to anybody else. But when I got hurt a little bit, it was a horrific thing. Yeah. No, Dick was um, spot on, I gotta say. He was. So I loved that moment of uh, Dick calling Danny a real bozo. But he wasn't the only character to call Danny a bozo because earlier on we get Beast Boy in a very confused <laughs> dig at Danny. They get home. Danny's being a little shit pretty much immediately. Beast Boy says, oh, I forgot about the beast with red hair. It's not a great dig, mm -mm. but Cyborg's like, hey, lay off him, Logan. Danny's okay. Beast Boy responds by saying, only way he'd be okay is medium rare and basted with barbecue sauce. So weird. It's very unsettling, especially when he does turn into animals on a regular basis. And we have speculated about whether or not he ever eats bad guys in that mode. Yeah, no, that was unsettling for sure. Also, I'm having trouble thinking of a meat that you would cook medium rare and would put barbecue sauce on. Is he putting barbecue sauce on steak? Ugh. Just poor decision making all around, Beast Boy. Who did you have as the president of the drama club in this issue? Boy, there were not really a shortage of candidates. But for me, when there is more than one scene of somebody pulling their own hair and crying, mm. that's like right up there with the shaking the fist to the heavens maneuver. Sure. And uh, since we got that from, from Dick, in addition to him, you know, understandably losing his shit on Danny, but doing it in a way that was somewhat uncharacteristic for him, I, I went with Dick as the president of the drama club. I understand your choice. I don't feel like he was being dramatic. I think I, those seemed like genuine and kind of earned reactions to me. Like, I, I don't think he was necessarily overselling it. I get where you're saying, because he was being very, very emotional. But I have difficulty imagining an instance where someone is reacting to a child dying and I'm like, oh, get a load of the drama queen. So I actually went with Donna on this just for basically calling a press conference for her new outfit and bringing a visual aid with it. 
like prioritizing having her new poster put up there to the extent that she did. It seemed a very drama club move. Like I said, I get where you're going with Dick, but it didn't really seem to me like he was being overly dramatic. You know, you got to take into consideration his usual acting style. Mm-hmm. Right. And were it you or I in that situation, would we be pulling our hair and crying? Probably. We're normal oh, yeah. human men from Earth. But for exactly. him, it's highly unusual, very unorthodox. Mm. Where I can see him winning that crown is the whole leg thing. Being like, no, no, I'm fine. Raven, you shouldn't heal my leg on this long space journey back. Also, don't heal my shirt. I'll just sit here all in my tattered tunic with my leg still broken, despite the fact that I know someone who can heal it immediately. Mm -hmm. And he has to have his, you know, hey, Starfire, thanks for lending support. But no, I got to go face the Batman on my own. And I'm going to have a fast but sullen drive over there. Well. Honestly, I kind of get that. Like, it is a tense family situation, and it isn't always a source of comfort to have your significant other with you in a situation like that. They can be someone that you, you feel you need to protect from your personal situation if you have a difficult family member. I don't know. Yeah, no, assuredly that would have added to the drama. But, mm -hmm. I mean, I don't know. It kind of goes with the leg thing and... And that scene was actually really beautifully depicted, like when he's having his, his thoughtful fast drive mm -hmm. to uh, Wayne Manor. You know who I think is always a potential choice if they are in the comic book for president of the drama club? Batman. Oh, yeah. He goes big. He goes very big and definitely recenters the whole tragedy on him and his experience with it. And he's just got that giant penny in his Batcave. Like, keeping the giant penny and the enormous dinosaur statue. Don't get me wrong, it's cool, but keeping your props is definitely a drama move. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know what? I'm taking it away from Don. I'm giving it to Batman on this. Yeah, good call. I support it. Where did he get that giant penny, anyway? I don't know. I was going to ask if that was, like, from, I don't know, something with the Joker at some point that... Probably? But yeah, I don't remember. I was also confused by it. I was like, is there a perspective issue with the way that these couple panels are rendered? Nope, that's just a giant fucking penny. No, he definitely has a giant fucking penny in his Batcave. That is like a fixture of the Batcave that has been drawn that way since I think at least the 60s. Hey, this is Editor Hub here in the future again. Turns out that giant penny is from a 1947 encounter with Batman's archenemy. I'm talking, of course, about Joe Coyne, the penny plunderer, who had a series of penny-related crimes. No doubt he will be played by Jeff Goldblum in the new Robert Pattinson movie. It does seem like a weird thing for him to hang on to. Yeah. I guess where are you going to put it? Like, we got a new couch, and I don't know how to get rid of my old couch. It's got to be hard to get rid of a giant penny. Yes, put it on Craigslist. Yeah, I guess Batman should probably put that giant penny on Craigslist. You gotta maybe charge a small amount of money rather than putting it for free. Right, because if it's free, people will be like, well, what's wrong with it? Or just no skin in the game. I've noticed that, like, if you put, like, something free outside your house, people won't take it. But if you write $10 on it, then people will steal it. Same, same principle for the Craigslist post. Yeah, that's a good point.
Although people might try to pay for the giant penny with one of those novelty oversized checks, and then Batman's right back where he started. Corey, every issue of a Teen Titans comic has an Aqualad, the greatest of Teen Titans, and also a Beast Boy, the worst of Teen Titans. In this issue, who'd you have as your Aqualad, who'd you have as your Beast Boy? For Aqualad, I went with Dick for firing Danny. Mm -hmm. I mean, on one hand, I guess it seems uncool that it was this unilateral move, but it's been established the Titans aren't necessarily a democracy, and he's their de facto leader. Mm -hmm. And I did something that was probably really pretty hard to do, and uh, about time. Yeah, I also had Dick as my choice for the same reasons. The way he yelled at Danny was just so fucking good. It was, have you seen, it's going around on like Twitter right now, but there's a thing with Elmo yelling at uh, Pet Rock that uh, another character has. I have not. It's worth seeing. Basically, his friend commandeers the last cookie that he wanted to give to her Pet Rock, and Elmo just freaks the fuck out. (laughs) (laughs) And it's just like, Rocco's gonna eat that, and Elmo just goes, how? Tell Elmo how Rocco is going to eat that, and it is just... It's very satisfying, but kind of in a similar way to seeing Dick yell at Danny. So yeah, Dick was my Aqualad for this. Runner-up, Elmo. (laughs) Yes. Other runner-up, Athens, for not wanting any part of the Titans bullshit. They're like, oh, here's your reward. You get to live with us and your now brain-dead ex-girlfriend who looks like Mumra. And he's like, nope. Nope. I'm going to go live on Xanthi's old planet hang out with his pals who were dicks and do work for them. I also appreciated that he stood up to Donna when Donna was like, no, we should take Xanthi back to Earth and bury him there. Why? Xanthi has never been to Earth. He has no fucking connection to Earth. That is a ridiculous thing, Donna. That was a weird one. Uh, And so I appreciated Athens being like, no, I'm going to take him back to the planet that he lived most of his life on and bury him there with the people that he was trying to protect. And I'm going to take over his job protecting them. So he he gets the backup Aqualad. Yeah, no, he he did a real a real 180. Mm -hmm. Conversely, who did you have as your beast boy? This may surprise you, but (laughs) being just horrible at DFC. Yep. Uh, runner-up Beast Boy for being gross. I had the exact same thing, but uh, looks like they will not be eligible for this category for a bit of time because they're both off the team. Maybe we can have a uh, BB slash DFC as the new category in in their honor. Yeah, well, I mean, it is already the Beast Boy, but I think we should at least talk about potentially renaming the category the Danny fucking Chase mm-hmm. because. In his brief tenure with the Titans, I think he did surpass the high bar for shittiness set by Beast Boy. Definitely in a scarier way, I feel like, when it comes to the potential for killing a lot of people. Yeah, no, we got a real Bill Moomy from that one episode of the Twilight Zone vibe off of this kid. Like, he could just blink and send the rest of the Titans to the cornfield. Oh, man, was that the really creepy kid who summoned the giant dead rabbit thing? Yeah, it was the It's a Good Life was the name of the episode. And then they they redid it in the movie as well. That's what I'm thinking of. I'm thinking of the movie. Yeah. All the grownups eat 
hamburgers with peanut butter on them. Okay, hamburger with peanut butter is actually pretty good. It sounds good, but at the time it sounded weird. Yeah, killer burger. I haven't had it since I stopped eating red meat, so it's been like five years, but uh, they, they make a very nice uh, peanut butter bacon burger. Wow, shit. I should try that. Mm-hmm. But regardless, yeah, Danny fucking Chase is the worst. Beast Boy's the second worst. Man, what a creepy kid. Yeah, hands down. Creepiest kid we got. Mm-hmm. Corey, it's time for us to have ourselves a Battle of the Band Names! What band names were you able to find in the text of this issue? Well, the one that I liked the best turned out to be an actual band name. Oh, what one was that? That was called Union Turnpike. Oh, that is a good name. Mm -hmm. They had a single that was in a movie. I can't remember the name of either <laughs> at this point, but that's, that's what the internet said. Tough but fair. Well, I don't think this one is a band name already, but I had The Servo Units. Hmm. I think it sounds kind of Devo-esque. Robotish, robot rock. I don't think necessarily robot rock. I, I can see where you would get that, and like the Mystery Science Theater has kind of co-opted the name Servo, and it is definitely a mechanical phrase. But uh, I don't know something about the Servo units to me. It just kind of reminds me of Devo, just like kind of like funny hats. Yeah, funny hats and maybe avant pop art punk, mm. but mostly funny hats. So that was one possibility. What did you have that wasn't already a band name? I had uh, two other choices. One, I think they play like gigs at brunch places, like easy jazz, if that's a genre of Ooh. jazz. Yeah, I think brunch jazz is a genre. It's probably like a flute and an upright bass and, I don't know, a couple Can I singers. guess the name? Sure. Is it Starry Firmament? No, it's not. Oh. Uh, that, that would have been a good one. What was yours? Uh, these guys are Saturday in New York. Oh, man. It just reminds me of that Chicago song. There's a Chicago song called Saturday in New York? It's not called that, but Saturday oh, yeah, in yeah. the park. It must have been the 4th of July. Doo -doo. How do they not know if it's the 4th of July? There are usually context clues that make that very obvious. Man, you're going to have to ask Chicago. Those guys know how to party. I guess they must uh yeah so saturday in new york that was yours that totally does sound like brunch jazz mm -hmm. yeah as i said i had starry firmament who i hadn't thought of as a brunch jazz band but i could see them fitting that description gosh what kind of music do you think starry firmament plays they could also play like i think we determined before despite being able to come up with any examples uh space rock Definitely a genre has been confirmed by many listeners that that is a, a legit genre. I think they, they do a subgenre of metal called Celestial Sludge. <laughs> it's like, uh, you know, like kind of space rock influenced doom metal. Like an electric wizard. Sure. That's the band. I believe you. They played that kind of droney, slow, heavy music. Oh, totally. Then, yeah, that's absolutely. It's their, uh, yeah, their, their doom metal, but like glam doom metal. Just throw in some hi-hat and one of those chime things. Uh-huh. 
Yeah. So that's Starry Firmament. What was your other choice? My other choice is also metal, but it's more like the fast and loud variety, and they're called Pray to Chaos. Oh, shit. Pray to Chaos is really good. I think that might be the best band name. They get confused often with the actual band Pray for Chaos. But, oh, uh, that is pretty close. Yeah. I think that might bump me into Saturday in New York's uh, brunch jazz <laughs> oh, combo. What, what a switcheroo. Is, are you okay with that? Yeah, I'm, I'm okay with it. I mean, I don't think I'd want to go see them, but somebody might. Hey, those eggs aren't going to sell themselves. No. Corey, the art in this issue is absolutely fucking gorgeous. But what was your favorite panel? Oh, that is tough. We've actually talked about all three of my choices already. So I'll just go through them real quick and then and then pick a favorite. So first mm-hmm. is uh, page five. It's uh, annoyed Donna slash uh, Raspberry Donna when she's sticking her tongue out at, at Marsha. Yep. I had the same choice as that being one of my favorites. I also had page six, I think, uh, Vic Surgery when he's in the middle of that apparatus. Yeah, I had that as page five, but I actually had that as one of my choices, too. It's just a very dehumanizing scene for him, and it creates kind of a sense of claustrophobia, and it's really, really well done. Yeah, the perspective in it is wild, too, where, like, there's this apparatus holding one of his arms up, like, right in front of the viewer's face, and then his body's further away, and it's connected by these cables that are all foreshortened and stuff. It's... Mm-hmm. A real work of art. And then my last choice was I th- maybe page 15. I call it Bat Punch. And it's uh, when Batman is decking Dick Grayson and he has absolute just rage in his eye that is shown. Yeah, I really appreciate that, too. It, it seems as though that is kind of a play on the classic panel of Batman slapping, like backhanding Robin that you see referenced in a lot of memes. Mm-hmm. But it is really, really beautifully done. My other favorite is one that we have also referenced before, but I call it the Bad Seed Danny. And it's on page 12 where it's after Dick has yelled at him, Raven is handing him his glasses back, and he just has this look of just cold, dead-eyed disdain. And it is really chilling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very creepy. You ever see that movie, The Bad Seed? Mm, doesn't ring a bell. It's really creepy. A movie's about, like, creepy little kids. Why would I watch such a thing? I don't know. I don't like feeling creeped out. That's fair. Fine with kids in general, but I don't, <laughs> I don't need to see movies about them being creepy. Man, have we talked about the fact that being a music teacher must be the most unsettling thing in the world? Like, the idea of children singing in unison just seems inherently terrifying to me. No, we haven't talked about that. It really does. And like when I think back to being in music class as a little kid, it seems like my music teachers were probably high. Like, I can't think of another reason why they would think it was a good idea for the whole class of kids in New Hampshire to sing in a Jamaican accent. Um, what did they have you sing? Among other things, Kingston Town by Harry Belafonte. Oh, boy. Yeah, just class of New Hampshire kids singing Calypso music in unison. I can't think of another reason for that other than marijuana. And if you're even a little bit paranoid, then like kids singing in unison, just gotta bring that Village of the Damned. Village of the Damned, is that what that movie is called? 
I think you're just every time you say that, I think of Jim Carter. I don't know. I don't know what you're referencing. The one where it's all of the blonde kids who talk in unison. Like classic horror movie. I thankfully have never seen that. That sounds awful. Yeah. Ooh. Ugh. I guess the good news is not all kids are natural singers, so there's there's gonna be at least a few stinkers in there that throw the unison thing off. That's true. Thank God for children having a terrible sense of meter. Yep. What were you talking about? We were Panels. Talking about panels. <laughs> Well, uh, were you done talking about panels? Just to put a bow on it, I think out of those that I mentioned, my favorite is the uh, Noid Donna Mm. panel. It was just so simple, but so perfectly rendered. Hard to do. It really is. And there are some like big dynamic panels in this, but I think it's interesting that for both of us, our favorites were the smaller moments in the book and the attention to detail that was put into them. That's a fancy goblet. What's in it? Glenn Fittich, 12-year-old. Oh, does it taste like a Band-Aid? No. Not even a little bit? Well, of course a little bit, because it's scotch. <laughs> now, thanks to you, all scotch tastes a little bit like a Band-Aid to me. Yeah, I wish it didn't. Sorry about that. Well, Corey, I have just one more question I have to ask you. In... The arbitrarily determined year of our Lord, 1990, and the month of our Lord, June. What was Aqualad probably up to, Corey Wapoot? Oh, man. Aqualad spent the later part of June 1990 in the proverbial aquatic doghouse with Aquaman. Oh. And working on some repairs to a pretty severely damaged Aquadome. Oh, no. What happened? So... This goes back to June 12th when uh, Mariah Carey's debut album was released. And Aqualad went out and got it. You know, had a lot of press that came out and sure thought it was going to be a nice thing to listen to. And, you know, for his preferences, which are varied, it was. He loves this record. It was the first record, or rather, she was the first artist since the Jackson 5 to have their first four singles on a single record top the charts in the United States. Ooh. And, uh, you know, was an international success, top charts in countries all over the world. Gosh, huge record to date, sold over 15 million copies. But one of those singles in Aqualad's favorite track is the song Vision of Love. Mm. And, you know, well, the song's production was pretty typical of late 80s, you know, early 90s, like really synthy kind of pop music. The vocals, definitely not so much. They were bigger and, and had a wider range than a lot of what was popular at the time, such as other artists, artists that we talked about on the show, like Paula Abdul and Debbie Gibson, you know, really putting Carrie in a, a league of her own among her contemporaries. The song also credited with popularizing the use and influencing other artists to follow with a I might be saying it wrong, but uh, melosomatic singing. And that's when you take one syllable of text and go over a bunch of different notes in succession. Oh, I don't care for that. Yep, not really my thing either. Something though Aqualad really seemed to enjoy. But you know whose thing it isn't either? Porpoises. So around oh. three minutes into that track, when she starts hitting those really high notes, a bunch of pods of porpoises freaked the fuck out, thinking Aqualad, their good pal, was in bad distress. 
because the vibrations were coming through the aquadome and they came in and just started hammering at it with their little porpoise noses and broke holes in and got in and went to check out what was going on and hopefully rescue him. And, you know, he was just jamming out to Mariah Carey. But boy, was Aquaman P.O.'d. And those porpoises and Aqualad got a real talking to and then <laughs> had to be uh, set about cleaning everything up and repairing the aquadome. Wow. Got to be careful with with your Mariah Carey albums. I think that's the takeaway of this. Yeah, in fact, her music was from that day on banned from the Aquadome. So at least uh, no Mariah Carey Christmas music in there. Oh, dear. Well, he couldn't just listen to it on his headphones. Well, you know, he's a, a, a youth of his word and Aquaman says no more Mariah Carey. Aqualad's going to comply. Oh, tough but fair. You know, that wasn't the only incident in June of 1990 where Aqualad's taste in pop culture may have had less than favorable results. You see, on June 1st, Aqualad was very excited about this. He rushed out and watched the movie Total Recall. Mm. And golly, he just really enjoyed that. Had, had a rollicking good time watching it. <laughs> but soon after he was watching it, he started getting all of these calls from Terry fucking Long. Terry was still doing his, like, mild version of uh, Jack Norris, where he's like, where's my wife, please? Please tell <laughs> Terry where his wife is. I'm so worried. And Aqualad was pretty sick of that, but, you know, he's a nice guy, so he, he's like, you know what, I, I can get Terry being worried. So he did have one conversation with him, where he's like, uh, geez, Terry, it sounds like uh, she went into space because she found out that her memories had been fucked with. Hey, you know, if you're looking for some more insight into that, you should watch the movie Total Recall. Because hmm. that's kind of what that is about. In it, you know, the, the main character finds out that his memories are fake, so he has to go into space. If you want to feel closer to Donna and what she's going through, why don't you watch that movie? And Terry Long's like, oh, I can't afford to go buy a movie ticket. Donna's not around to give me my allowance right now. Hmm. Uh, is, there, is there a book about it? And, uh, well, I mean, of course, Total Recall is based on a Philip K. Dick book, hmm. but Aqualad didn't know that, but what he did know was that he had read the novelization of the movie Total Recall, which was by Pierce Anthony. What? <laughs> yeah, I read that when I was a kid, too. It was not good. Oh, boy. Those novelizations of movies are often based on an earlier draft of the script, so they can come out at the same time as the movie. They're not based on the final shooting script. Uh, so there are some divergences, but uh, Aqualad was like, yeah, I think you can pretty much get the same idea across if you read the, uh, the Piers Anthony novelization of Total Recall. Terry's like, okay, good, because I do still have some credit left at the bookstore when I sold my books back at the university. So he goes into the campus bookstore, and he's like, um, I need a Pierce Anthony book. I can't remember what it's called. The person at the bookstore was like, we just have the one in stock right now. It came out about a year ago. And Terry's like, I'm sure that's it. How many Pierce Anthony books can there be? <laughs> so he picked up a book that came out in June of 1989 called Pornocopia. Oh, no. Pierce Anthony's <laughs> erotic tale of a dude who has a demon steal his dick. <laughs> and so he is given by a wizard a bag of magic dicks that he has to fuck his way through the cosmos 
to find his original dick and retrieve it from the demon. Dude. And Terry Long read that, and he's like, well, I don't know what Wonder Girl's up to, but this is the best book I've ever read. And then he just kept calling Aqualad and wanting to talk about the book Pornocopia by Piers Anthony, which is a terrible book, but that is more or less the plot of it. I read it a few years ago, and it, it's not good, but uh, it is about a guy who has his penis stolen by a demon and then he has to uh go on a magical quest to use a bunch of magic dicks that a wizard gave him to try to get his dick back that is weird yeah and that's what aqualad was probably up to <laughs> not doing that stuff but uh dealing with terry long wanting to talk about that oh god yeah well thanks for joining us Corey. <laughs> sorry to put that plot synopsis in your head but uh there it is thank you i will also say not the worst pierce anthony book i've read wow we'll be back next week to talk some defenders and in a couple of weeks we'll be back and i think we'll be doing something different in the new titans for that one in the meantime if you would like to get into touch with us we could be reached at ttwasteland at gmail.com or at our post office box at Tighten up the defense, P.O. Box 20311, Portland, Oregon, 97294. We're also up on the socials media some, so if you poke around in your interweb, you can probably find us on there. But hey, if you can't find us there, there is one more place you can look, and that's deep inside your heart. We'll be in there. We always have been. Corey, what are you going to be doing in people's hearts this week? Oh, sitting back with a an old scotch that hopefully doesn't taste too much of band-aids and reading anything but Piers Anthony novels. <laughs> a wise choice. Thank you. Let's see. What am I going to be doing in people's hearts? Well, gosh, now I do kind of want to check out that book again. <laughs> I think I'm going to hold off, though, because okay. it, re it really was very, very bad. Yeah, I'm just going to be chilling out and drinking some chamomile tea, maybe burning our old Charlie Brown looking Christmas tree. Maybe have a little fire in your heart's backyard and do that. I always enjoy that smell of burning Christmas tree, as long as it's done in the proper context. So yeah, maybe that's what I'll get up to. Sounds relaxing. Yeah. Maybe I'll try some scotch with it too. Got a pretty good bottle lying around somewhere. Careful, might taste like band-aids if you think about band-aids. That's true. I think that we were talking about that in a part that was not for the show. <laughs> But it is it is true that, uh, unfortunately, that in a very good scotch, even there is sometimes that smell of when you open a new box of latex band-aids, the scotch tastes kind of like that. Yeah, but in the best way possible. Mm, delicious oh my God, this is how those ridiculous wine reviews happen, Hub. I've always wondered that where like I was like, man, these guys are full of hot air. Like it tastes like tobacco and old car seats. <laughs> You know, in a good way. Like, that sounds disgusting, and no, it doesn't. But I just had an excellent scotch that tasted a little bit like a latex mandate, not in a bad way, so. So maybe that's why we'll be writing uh, reviews of beverages inside your heart. Oh, yeah, that's for our other uh, podcast. What was it? Beverage Spectator? Now, Beverage Spectator was where we just looked at drinks. I think in this one, we should maybe drink and talk about them. Anyway, 
If you would like to support the show financially, please check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash ttwasteland. If you donate, you get access to a whole bunch of bonus material that is available as a thank you for people who have supported the show. Uh, one of the things you get access to is the podcast What the Duck, a podcast most foul but with a W because he's a duck. That's the full name of the show. That is the Howard the Duck podcast that I co-host with my wife, Lisa. There is also a whole bunch of other stuff that is up there. Video reviews of classic comic books, a little advice video that I made recently, and a whole lot of other podcasts that I've done with Corey and some other friends. That is just up there as a thank you. So, thank you. If people would like to support the show in a non-financial way, Corey, what's a way people could do that? The two main ways that come to mind are leaving reviews and talking to people about the show. Outside of a review. Well, what would be an example of a review someone might leave? This show is better than old Band-Aids. Five stars. Wow. How does it compare to new Band-Aids? I'm afraid to ask. And yeah, that, like Corey mentioned, the other way that you could, uh, you could spread the word about the show is uh, talking to people. Get out your semaphore flags and flag down all the ships in the air and in the sea. Well, wait. Are there ships in the air? Airships? Dirigibles? How is our listenership among dirigibles? Uh, what? I, can you repeat the question? <laughs> how is our listenership amongst dirigibles? Like, how do we test in that demographic? Oh, um, I don't know. Let me consult my... Uh, we don't have that information. Oh, that's too bad. I wonder if there's a difference between... Uh, Airships that have a rigid structure and uh, blimps. There is a difference. In our listenership numbers? Oh, oh, no, I did, that I don't know. Yeah, I, I'm just wondering whether uh, we do better amongst blimps, zeppelins, dirigibles, or other airships. It would be good to know. It would be nice to have more targeted marketing in that way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we just could be dumping all our money into, you know, the helicopter market. I don't think people would be able to hear us above the rotors. Oh, jeez. Oh, we're, we're fools. Squandered all oh, of that dear. marketing budget Gosh. on the helicopter demographic. Yeah, we spent all that money to get TC from Magnum as our celebrity spokesperson. Well, I, the thing is, if people have a helicopter, they probably got some extra cash, was the thinking, and some leisure time. Uh, so they might be more prone to make donations, but... Yeah, they're not they're not going to be able to hear us. Nobody's listening to a podcast on a helicopter. That was not well thought out. Well, back to the drawing boards. Yep. Goodbye. Bye. And they knew it. I watched a bunch of interviews with Ben Gazzara <laughs> recently. Oh, yeah, just on a lark. Well, we had we had talked about him a lot in uh, the Roadhouse episode. <laughs> oh, that's true, we did. Yeah. And yeah, there is one interview where he was promoting the movie Roadhouse, and it was just like the interview with him. He had a glass of wine in one hand and a cigar in the other, and it's just waxing nostalgic and talking about what a great movie Roadhouse is. 
And when I read this material, I said, well, this guy has a sense of humor. He's funny. And he even sings. I said, I got to play this part because I haven't played a good old villain in a long time. And that's why I came and did it. And I'm glad I did it. I, I met some wonderful people. Uh, Joel Silver and Rowdy Harrington, a wonderful young director. Sam Elliott, Patrick, terrific actors. I had a good time. A good Hollywood time, which I hadn't had in many, many years. What do you think the picture will do? Do you think it's a... A lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's going to make a lot of money because it's entertaining. I love Ben Gazzara. Yes. Yes, we've, we've established that. <laughs> That's true. I'm probably going to edit out this Gazzara talk because we've had a lot already. 